0: The, the Lord be with you. And with spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, o Lord. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for forty days and forty nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again, it is written, like you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give you, if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. This, at this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ.
1: I want us all to think for just a moment about what is most real for us. What's the thing that when you're not thinking about anything else, automatically just enters your mind? What's the, the, the person or the situation or the concern or the worry that when you lie in bed at night and can't sleep, just won't stop running? Or, maybe kind of contrary-wise, what is it when you're doing something else but that doesn't require much thought? Driving to the grocery or someplace you go all the time or in the shower in the morning during your sort of morning routine. What is it that just automatically pops up then? Because the answer to that is going to tell you an awful lot about what's really important to you. What we obsess over, what we think about, what, what, what we talk about at home with our loved ones or with our closest friends like those are the things that really deeply matter to us the lord says where your treasure is there also will your heart be that's true where, where we put our money says something about our value i'm going to say where you where you put your attention where you put your emotional energy where you put your personal investment that's going to tell you what's really most important to you is it money or things you can buy with money if it is, I got news for you. Can't take it with you. Is it relationships? That's better. That's closer. That at least pertains to persons. That's a good thing. And those are important, and we should care for them and be concerned about those relationships. But that's, that's not going to be enough. Is it prestige or honor? I want people to like me, or I want people to appreciate me, or I want people to respect me, or even just to fear me. And all of those things may in their own way be necessary at different times and seasons of our lives, but they can't be what's most important. What the church calls us to every year during this sort of marathon training we call Lent is to strip away everything that's not necessary, all that stuff that regularly occludes our vision, that distracts, that, 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 that disorients, that gets in the way and bear us down like, to the most essential bits. And when we're torn down like that, what should be left is a hunger for God. Listen again to the Lord's First Lent. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, footnote here. Um, no, sorry, that's for later. Uh, Was sorry was tempted by uh, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus doesn't go out to the desert on his own. He doesn't say to himself, Jesus. We've got heavy work to do now. So let's go out into the desert and we're going to we're going to like we're going to exercise spiritually for a while so that later we're strong enough to do what we need to do. No doubt he's considering those things, but that's not what's going on here. Jesus allows himself to be led. In fact, the verb choice here is not super. It's more like like propelled or thrown. The Spirit chased Jesus out into the desert. And again, the language here is confusing, to be tempted. Now, a couple years ago, the Pope got a real nut on about the the language that we use around temptation, and he's perfectly right. Like, God doesn't just put us in situations to tempt us to sort of see what happens. Like, he doesn't know what we're going to do, or because he's some kind of curious puppet master who wants to play with his creation. That's not it at all. But it is the case that in our fallen world, we will experience temptation, It's not an option, it's not a question, it's not an if, maybe. Anybody who lives long enough to attain the age of reason and probably a little bit before that, you're going to be tempted. And if you're sitting here, uh, you've already failed. That's good news, that's good news because it means that if if you've fallen, if you've failed in the face of temptation, you know you can't do this by yourself. That's why we can't be in charge of our own Lent. This can't just be making up for the New Year's resolutions we've already squelched on a month and a half ago. This has got to be something much more profound, much deeper. This has got to be us stripping away so that the grace can finally seep in. It's like grace has been battering at the door of your soul, but there's all this other stuff to look at and pay attention to and to spend time with and on. And And if we can finally just let go of some of the extras then there's space inside for the something more the something more that is the grace of the holy spirit to propel us on there's a narrative dynamic at play here that might not be obvious there's a reason that the church gives us this passage from genesis today so the books of the bible it's worth noting the books of the bible were not written in order And nobody ever seriously thought they were except maybe some weird protestants in the 19th century but but like the the bible was not written in order and the order that the books are in now is not especially important there are sections that are but the 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 big ones that are important are like genesis is at the beginning on purpose why because it tells the story of the beginning right And Revelation's at the end on purpose. Why? Because it's the end of the story, right? And the Gospels, the Gospels sit right at the hinge, the space, like, where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, even though everything else in the New Testament, except Revelation, was was written before, because because Jesus is the hinge. His life is, is... is the marking point, the demarcation, where God stops being the director and the author of the story and becomes a character himself, and that character comes to play on stage very differently than any of the others. So it is no accident that the church gives us this passage from uh, from Genesis, because our first parents sinned, and what happened to them? Where did they go after the sin? where they go? The desert. They got chased out of paradise. So they're in a paradise. They get thrown out into a desert. Jesus goes into the desert in order to bring us back into paradise. And how does he do it? By fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Which is why today we keep Christ's Lent not in imitation of Jesus, Sometimes I think we think about Jesus as though he's just like the biggest and best ball star. And what we're trying to do when we imitate the life of Jesus is like, is, is like parrot the moves of somebody whom we're trying to be like. It's not true. It's not true. When we keep Lent faithfully, we're not imitating Jesus. We're participating in Jesus. This is a real share in the Christ life. And so the actions that we perform have real and eternal meaning. The church also has us look back to this passage on Genesis because when we're stripped down to our barest essentials, what we find at the bottom is not always beautiful. Like when I'm left to my own devices, even if you take away all the temptations that surround me all the time, my will is sufficiently warped that I'm gonna keep wanting things that aren't great for me. That is, I'm gonna want to sin. And so the church gives us a kind of primer on sin by recalling the very first one. I know you know the story, but listen, and maybe hear differently for the first time. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. This was the footnote I'd meant to give before. So you will hear commentators nowadays, especially like on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or something, say something like, well, you know, the book of Genesis never mentions a devil. It, it only mentions a serpent. And so it's, it's a conflation to associate the serpent with the, with, with the devil. It's stupid. It's, it could only be proposed by a person who's never read a book. Alright? This, this, is, this is like saying Superman is clearly not Clark Kent because Clark Kent wears glasses. Are we to believe that the Jews were so fabulously stupid they actually thought snakes could talk? I mean, you can actually claim that it's anti Semitic to do this. Okay? So, to be very clear, for the entirety of the tradition, all of Christian history and virtually all of rabbinical history, the serpent is not a talking snake. He's a bad guy. Now, whether he's coterminous with Satan or not doesn't really matter, but he, he is a malign spirit who's come to mess things up. The bad guy comes to tempt the good guys, or in this case the good girl, into something bad. Now, the serpent was the most cunning, there's a reason they use that word, of all the animals that the Lord had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God really tell you not to eat any of the fruit of the trees in the garden? Right out of the gate, the devil tries to make God into a fool. Like the commandments are impossible, and really, they're just unreasonable. Like like, like God's being an overprotective parent of a teenager. And, By golly, I, I just want to stay out past curfew. It's only half an hour later, Dad. And I promise, there's no beer. So... So right out of the gate, the devil's trying to twist the truth. Now the woman, in the face of the temptation initially, she speaks the truth. She says, no, 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 we can eat of the fruit of any of the trees. It's only of the fruit of the tree in the middle that God said you shall not touch it lest you die. So then the serpent tries to play it again. Ah, sweetheart, you don't really believe that, do you? No, 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 God's jealous of you. He's worried if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. Eat the fruit and you won't have to depend on him anymore. You'll be able to do it all by yourself. You'll be able to do it. It's a lie. It's a cunning lie. It's an attractive lie. It's a lie a lot of us tell ourselves all the time. I get into real bad trouble. Do I want to ask for help? No. I want to not tell anybody because then it means admitting I got myself into trouble. And I'm going to fix it on my own. And you know what happens when I do that? Somebody calls the bishop. <laughs> it's a foolish way to live. It'll always bring you misery. So then what happens? Well, she takes the fruit, of course, and, and seeing that the tree was good, uh, pleasing to the eyes, desirable for wisdom, she took it and she ate it, and this is, this is the nature of sin. We can't be satisfied making a wreck of our own lives. We've got to hurt somebody else, too, because misery loves company, right? So she gives it to her husband, and who is it we most often hurt with our sins? Those closest to us. The ones we love best or live with. Hopefully those are the same people, but I don't So, maybe not. So, so, she, so she hooks her husband, she co-ops her husband into the very same sin. And it's from that point on that they realize things have gone desperately, desperately wrong. Now we all of us fall into our own temptation and drift ourselves right out of paradise all the time. We make bad decisions that make us feel guilty and that we try and hide or obfuscate or deny or minimize that make us more miserable, and then all of our time and our energy is spent wasted on stuff that doesn't matter and that we wouldn't have to be doing if we hadn't messed up in the first place. The remedy that Christ offers, the remedy the church continues to hold out to us to this day, is fasting and prayer and almsgiving. Why? Well, fasting, because it cuts to our most basic desire. Now, there's, there's a way of fasting and a way of being concerned about fasting that, I'll be honest, I find extraordinarily dissatisfying right? They asked me on the radio about this this week. They wanted me to give the ages and who counts and who doesn't count and all that kind of business. Here's the truth about fasting right now in the church. First of all, we have the weakest fast laws in the whole history of Christendom, and the East, the other half of the church, looks at us and says, wussy, like you literally would have to eat a donut on the way into church in order to break the fast most days, right? Unless I'm preaching, then maybe you're okay. Somebody caught that. So, so the fasting rules are deliberately lax because the church doesn't want to bind under pain of sin and make people feel guilty for things that aren't sinful. But there is hardly a person in this church Unless you're diabetic and I'm gonna set your blood sugar off or got some real wonky dietary thing that can't just, like, not eat sometimes. Like, it's real basic, just like, don't eat. Not forever, not all day, don't pass out, but like, most of us, if you look around here, we could all spare a meal or two, and it's good for us. Not as a diet, but because we all have a real hard time saying no to ourselves. I struggle to say no to myself before brushing my teeth in the morning. And if we can't say no to ourselves for something small, like meat on Friday, or one less meal, or cream in our coffee, or our favorite TV show, how on earth do we expect to have the fortitude to say no to sin, when real sin, real attractive sin, makes itself present to us? This isn't about building up our own willpower for our own sake. So it is different than training, like, for a a marathon or a tournament that way. But it's to open ourselves up so that the part we can't do, the part we know we'll fail on because we have in the past, that God can fix by grace. But we've got to make room for the grace to go so that it can actually come in. Jesus faces three base temptations that are much like the ones we all face every day. The temptation to food which is not just food, right? It's food, it's drink, it's sex, it's, it's comfort. It's the base pleasures of the body, which are important and have a place, but we cannot allow to rule us. The temptation to adulation, to honor, to being esteemed by other people. Now there's a version of this which is stupid. Like sometimes you'll read spiritual writers and in context it makes sense, but out of context, it sounds like they're saying, they're like a 13-year-old saying, I don't care what nobody thinks about me. I- I'm good all on my own. It's a lie when you're a teenager, and it's a bigger lie when you're a grown-up. And it's also very stupid. Like, you should actually care about what the people whom you trust think about you. That's why we do interventions. If somebody comes to you, if your whole family comes to you and says, uh, Jason, I think you got a drinking problem, you better listen to him. If your boss comes to you and says it, you better listen to him more. That's not what we're saying. But when we prioritize the honor of other people over what God has given us, over his will in our lives, over his place in our lives, over the commandments and and the precepts of the church, well, then we got a problem, right? If I'm caring what my coworker thinks about me and whether they think I'm cool or not, more than whether or not I should actually say grace before I eat my lunch, that is a problem. That is a sin. You need to knock that off. And that's the same kind of thing Jesus had to face. And then maybe the worst temptation of all the one that knocked down our first parents, the one that each of us still struggles with to this day, the temptation to grasp at godhood, right? Listen to this again. The devil took him up to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. Now, this clearly is like a vision, right? You can't, there's no mountain tall enough to see everybody. And he said to them, all these I shall give you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. I want you to think about this. When the devil tempted the woman, she was not God. The man and the woman were not God. They were man and a woman. But he put in their minds the idea to grasp a godhood. And there was something in them that that appealed to. Because they were made for God. Because the only thing that would ultimately satisfy them was God. Why do you want more cheeseburgers than are good for you? Cheeseburgers are good. But why is three not as good as one, but bad? Because your desire is infinite. You want the biggest, best, and most of everything you can get. And that's because the one thing that is biggest, that is bestest, that is mostest, is God. It's a misfire inside us that causes us to want the wrong thing. So the devil plants this seed, and she reaches out to grasp at what can only be given. It's like falling in love. You can't make somebody else love you. You can try, talk to Cyrano, didn't work out so high. No, you can try to woo somebody, to to seduce somebody, to convince somebody, but you cannot command love. It's the same thing here. God longs to share his life with us. He did from the very beginning, but it's not something we can get all on our own. It's past our competence. It's past our capacity. It's past our power. The only way that comes is by gift. So when the Lord faces the same temptation as our first parents and endures and triumphs and sends the devil packing, then the Lord comes running back out of the desert Hungry and thirsty, not for bread and water, but for you. Because he wants to take you by the hand back to the paradise lost by our first parents. Because he wants to restore you to the grace that was lost and more. Give you the thing for which you were made. Which you could never have all on your own. Which would never satisfy you without him. His life itself. Today, this is mind-bonding. Today... You get to eat from the fruit of the tree that Adam and Eve stole. The tree is right here. The tree of life, which has power over life and death and which will show you infallibly what is truly right and wrong. And you will eat of its fruit here at the table. And if you do, then everything you've ever wanted all your desires, all your hopes, all your dreams will ultimately be satisfied. They might be changed. They might be nuanced. And you will undoubtedly be drugged to places you cannot now imagine. But you will be saved. And if you are willing, you will save others in time.